0: you Everybody, welcome back to the pod and the pendulum. We are typically the show that covers horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. But this week is a very special bonus episode. This is something, uh, if you've been listening to the show for the past probably six months, I've talked about or threatened to do this episode. Uh, And I have with me, dear friend and uh, frequent guest and contributor to pod and the pendulum, Jessica Scott and uh, Jessica. I'm too excited to even say
1: what we're doing right
0: <laughs> now. I am far too hyped. Uh, I can feel my heart beating fast. What are we
1: doing tonight? We are doing Jawbreaker versus Jawbreaker, the movie and the band. Yes,
0: we are going to be talking about the 1999 uh, black comedy slash kind of horror movie mm. uh, Jawbreaker and the, essential emo punk band from the 90s and now currently reunited uh east bay punk's jawbreaker uh aka my fucking favorite (laughs) band of all time so this is going to be a fascinating one Uh, i don't know how long it will go um if i had my way i'd probably i i am worried that i'm going to become that that meme where there's the dude (laughs) leaning into the woman's ear and he's just like mansplaining something, and the woman is horrified. <laughs> I am very worried that that's going to happen tonight. But why don't we start like this? Could be why don't we start with 1999's Jawbreaker? And Jessica, tell me just like off the top of your head, what was your first exposure to this movie? Um,
1: I saw this in theaters. My sister and I went to see it. I from you know, I don't remember a lot of my theater experiences, but I remember this one. Um, I was fascinated with it from the trailers because it's got this really dark story, but these candy-colored visuals, this, like, really candy-coated soundtrack. I just, I was fascinated by the duality there. Um, So I went to see it in theaters and just fell in love with it. I was so dismayed that it didn't do well critically, it didn't do well commercially, Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody forgot it, hated it, but I loved it. It's been one of my favorite movies ever since I saw it. So I I was very lucky to see this one in theaters. Mm-hmm.
0: So it just hit you. And if you don't mind me asking like roughly what stage of life would you have seen this at? Was this like high school years? This
1: was high school. I would have been 15, 16 when this came out, probably 15 mm-hmm. years old. So yeah, I was the perfect age because I was in high okay. school, just a little younger than these characters are in this movie.
0: Yeah. And were you like all right, this is what senior year is going to totally be like at this point
1: right now. <laughs> no, okay, so I always tell people I did not go to a John Hughes high school. I mm-hmm. There weren't cliques. It wasn't popular kids and nerds and cheerleaders. So I didn't have that kind of dog-eat-dog dog mentality and I didn't see that in other people in high school. I I grew up thinking that was a myth that was only on television, but it was only in talking to other people that I knew after I graduated high school that they were like, no, dude, that's what high school's like. How did you not know that? Mm-hmm. But yeah, my high school was very different. So I thought it was just more like fantasy, like that John Hughes click thing that I only thought was real in movies. But, you know, I... I can't say I've never met a mean girl. I'm not saying that. I've I've met right. cutthroat people and um, not quite Courtney Shane, but I've met people who were aspiring Courtney Shanes. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it all kind of lended itself to the fantasy of it for me. Like it was just that much funnier and that much more kind of aspirational in that like well-dressed bitchy way, but not real, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So it just, it's such a funny campy but dark movie and it's got that just fantastic queer fantasy going on and so that was what it was for me was this fantasy where i just wanted to live in this world where everything was heightened to the nth degree and it was just so much fun so that was i i didn't think oh no this is what i have to look forward to i was just like oh hell yeah i want to live in this movie
0: yeah you just wanted to like populate that world yes yeah at this point it's kind of like clueless Turned on its head a little bit. Totally. That's how I kind of saw this world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I kind of had the same experience as you when it comes to high school in that there were like cliques per se, or there were different groups of people. Um, But I found, and I went to an all boys high school. Like I actually asked my parents when I was in eighth grade. I'm like, look, seventh grade was hard. All I did was chase girls around like puberty hit. And it was bad. (laughs) It was really I'm like, I think I should go to that Catholic high school that my cousins went to because uh, I will do better academically there. Um, So that's like, all right, if that's what you want to do, you big weirdo. (laughs) Um, And what was interesting was like, we had two sister schools and they would just bust the girls in for like dances and doing theater and everything else. So I probably did way better than, because by the time like... 2 p.m. rolled around or the Friday night dance rolled around like the girls are like any port in a store like, you will do kid. all right so um but yeah I found like in terms of clicks it was like yeah there were the athletes there were like the nerdy smart kids or the theater kids there were like the punks those are all four of my clicks like people just mm-hmm. floated in and out of them and hung out and it was generally cool and even when I hung out with like you know, my friends that went to like the local public school, it was kind of the same. There wasn't that huge division. And I do think the John Hughes thing is a bit it's overstated. Mm-hmm. Um I do agree that if anyone tells you that high school is the best four years of your life, like <laughs> you never trust anything never they ever say <laughs> again. Like that's awful. Mm-hmm. Um but I found it was more like dazed and confused in that like Everybody without the well, actually, there's a lot of hazing when I went to school um, with slightly less hazing or maybe less overt hazing mm-hmm. is what I found. Yeah. Um, so really quick for those who haven't seen this movie in a long time, like, can you give like a, a quick synopsis? Like what goes on in Jawbreaker besides four young women look super hot <laughs> and hot? The Most dominatrix y wings, right? It's, oh my it's god, amazing! Yeah,
1: like though those costumes are still total fashion goals, like it's like dominatrix gear, but it's super candy colored. Like you said, it's like clueless, but if clueless at a leather club, kind of so, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, so for female friends in high school, they're the cool girls at school three of them kidnap Liz Purr, who's the perfect girl at school. They kidnap her on her birthday, which according to the movie is a thing that girls do. Um, Mm -hmm. They kidnap her. Courtney uh, gags Liz with a jawbreaker to keep her quiet, and when they pop the trunk to get her out for her birthday pancakes, Liz is dead. So Courtney, Marcy, and Julie cover up her murder and go about ruling the school like nothing happened. Um, The Uh, resident nerd Fern Mayo discovers what has happened and Courtney offers her a chance to live in the limelight, take Liz's place as the popular girl. If she will keep her mouth shut about the murder that happens, uh, Julie objects. And then the plan devolves from there as they try to cover up this murder, the cops get involved, the school gets involved and it's just mean girl, high school politics run amok for the rest of the movie. It is, so funny and so dark and so good. It's got an amazing cast. I mean, Carol Kane, um, um, of course, Foxy Brown herself, Pam Greer shows up. You know, it's got an amazing cast and they're all working at the top of their game. Um, the music is great, the soundtrack is killer. A lot of Imperial Teen, which was one of my favorite bands at the time. You know, that uh, iconic hallway walk as you who plays as they're walking in slow motion mm-hmm. down the hallway. Um, so a lot of iconic moments and just a really dark but funny kind of uh, high school story.
0: Am I crazy as I look at the IMDb and I'm like, I don't see Judy Greer's name in this?
1: I'm I am looking at Wikipedia, but I will look at uh imdb to see because you know judy so that's judy greer. judy greer is fern mayo slash violet right. who she becomes now, um why
0: do i not see her in here this is bananas um because like she's basically the co-lead of this movie. yeah
1: exactly rose mcgowan and judy greer are kind of battling it out the whole time
0: mm-hmm. and this is like a murderer's row of like late 90s mm-hmm. just like like julie benz who plays marcy would have at that point have been on like buffy yeah. the vampire slayer mm-hmm. and then angel as darla uh rose mcgowan coming off doom generation mm-hmm. and scream it's kind of at her peak here yeah uh rebecca Gayhart as well like coming off of like her run on like 90210 in the early to mid 90s mm-hmm. and then Is Dylan's wife who gets blown up in a mob hit. (laughs) That show, before there was Riverdale, there was like (laughs) 90210 that just like went in some places. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Urban Legend. So this is just an absolutely like stacked cast. And then you get like Jeff Conway from Taxi, who just has like a little walk-on part, is like Marcy's father. And Mm -hmm. then Carol Kane, almost like give her more to do. Like when I saw some of the people in this movie, I'm like, all right, give, you know, I, I wish that Carol Kane had a little bit more to do with this, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, PJ souls and William cat showing up to represent Carrie very Mm -hmm. briefly as Liz's parents. You you barely Mm -hmm. even see them, but yeah. Yeah.
0: What do you think it was about? Why do you think this movie didn't like, it has like a really good cult following now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have like discovered it and speak really highly of it. But you mentioned like at the time you were disappointed, like it didn't necessarily um, translate into
1: the box office. Like, why do you think that might be? Honestly, I think people struggle with camp. Mm -hmm. It's some people just don't like it. It's not to their taste. I think some people struggle with, am I supposed to take this seriously? Am I supposed to let, they don't get the humor of it because this is a Mm -hmm. very specific strain of camp comedy. Like it's, Well, I was going to say it's ostensibly straight girls, but at least half of the leads are queer women.
0: You know, Mm -hmm. Courtney
1: and Fern slash Violet are both queer, and I will die on that hill. Um, But, (laughs) you know, but this is very much, you know, Darren Stein, as an out gay man, you know, writing, directing this, this has queer sensibility all over it. And I don't know that all teen audiences were picking up on it. And I don't know that adult audiences were picking up on it either. Um, Because again, I just, some people don't have a taste for camp and some people don't know how to read it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like even the transitions, like the, the wipes and the sound effects and the goofy sound effects and everything, you know, that's, a feature not a bug but i think some people were responding poorly to that and just didn't get it you know i'm not trying to sound like a snob like well they don't like it because they just don't understand it but i just i really think people didn't get the sensibility
0: yeah i struggle with camp i mean it's camp and we've i think i've talked about this uh before when we were doing the child's play movies mm-hmm. like as much as i love bride of chucky uh and seed of chucky like I think especially when it came to Seed of Chucky, like it's so over the top mm-hmm. uh, and it's got that weird kind of like nodding at the audience, kind of like I really love pro wrestling when it's done right or what I consider done right. Like when, what I mean by that is like when it feels real to me and to me, camp is always like a wink at the audience. Like, Oh, isn't this kind of like, aren't we indulging ourselves right now? Or are we being a bit silly? And I struggle with that a bit but when it's done well it can really pop and i think this is a case where like it really does pop off the screen Mm -hmm. um i think one of the really fascinating aspects of this movie is the transformation of like judy uh judy greer's character to uh from fern to violet just the name itself when you think of when you think of fern, you think of like a potted plant, like just the stationary, kind of like amorphous blob of green, like not necessarily something that you know, you put it in there, it's kind of like a background plant, right? Back of a better. But violets, like, really pop. They're colorful, they stand out, they have a distinct smell to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and my God, the makeup department did an amazing job of like hiding how naturally gorgeous Judy Greer Mm -hmm. is until you know and then the going completely in the other end uh with the second half of this movie
1: yeah and one of the scenes I'm completely obsessed with is her transformation scene because Um, I think they're playing with this idea of you know Derenstein is making fun of the oh take the glasses off put her hair back and suddenly she's gorgeous and nobody saw it before because they're intercutting and having a montage of Violet getting her makeover at the same time that Liz is getting her makeover from the mortician. Mm-hmm. Like she's literally taking Liz's Liz place and they're getting their makeovers done at the same time. And it's so morbid and so over the top. It's this all, it's almost like a dream sequence, but it's not a dream sequence. It's a really interesting, like high mm-hmm. camp uh, scene where we've got yeah. the, the mortician and everything. And I think not only are they just making it as out there as they can, but I think they're really poking fun at the teen movie and poking fun at this themselves, like saying this idea that if you take the glasses off the girl, she goes from a two to a 10, mm-hmm. you know, there's all of these famous makeover scenes in teen movies. So, Right. The she's all that. Yes, okay. exactly. But yeah, but juxtaposing it with what morticians do and all the icky implications mm-hmm. of that i'm just it's so funny and so dark no. and really like shows kind of the dark rot at the soul of these teen girls who you normally think of as you know pep squad poppy sugar sugar and spice and everything nice i'm just obsessed with it
0: yeah and their future like ceo like boardroom like cutthroat like mm-hmm. members like the way they they are eight, just cut to the quick i looked at this almost like a Frankenstein uh, take, a, a, like a weird late nineties teen riff on Frankenstein mm-hmm. in that like Courtney essentially, cr- you know, she makes a bargain with Fern saying, okay, like if you, you know, keep our secret and allow us to cover up the murder of our friend, we will make you one of the popular girls. Mm-hmm. And she it's a, drives us really, you know, the bargain comes back to bite her because like she creates essentially this monster like within a few weeks like violet is pretty much taking courtney's place on the uh pecking order at that point Mm -hmm. um like one of the girls is kicked out of the group like basically they're like all right you're not really willing to go along with this then you are going to be on the outs at this point um but courtney realizes pretty soon that she's got this monster in her hands like she cannot you know, now that like Fern slash Violet has this taste of popularity, she's like, oh, this is what I've been missing out on for the past like three years and nine months of my high school experience. <clears throat> so um, we have to go back and get me like as much of this in the next month that I can. Like I need that experience. Mm-hmm. So, and she's really, really good at being. You know, playing politics basically, or playing school politics, I would say, mm-hmm. in social politics. Like she knows what to go for. Um, she just has the real disadvantage of, you know, having a not so popular past that can be wielded against her uh, like a weapon.
1: Yeah. And it really shows how much of a house of cards that kind of teen popularity is that people are Mm -hmm. so easily manipulated like they're they're presented with something as oh violet is the the brand new thing suddenly everyone's obsessed with her even though as courtney says deep down they really know who she is Mm -hmm. but they're so easily molded and easily swayed and i'm not saying this is unique to teenagers i think this is just a human nature thing Mm -hmm. uh where you're presented with this next new thing and just to go along with the popular crowd, you just buy into it. It shows how, how fragile it all is and how meaningless it all is. But. You know, I think Fern says she's so about Courtney. She says she's so evil and she's just in high school. Like these are things that carry on for our entire lives. This is not leave high school. When we graduate, we don't leave Mm -hmm. behind these traits. And it's just, it's such a funny satire of human nature it just it makes it a little more palatable maybe because it's in high school and it makes it more fun and that's always one of the fascinating things
0: with a good high school movie is it does become this little fishbowl that you're peering in on Mm -hmm. of like society at large and you know what is what traits are valued or what sort of personalities are going to kind of emerge out of this like laboratory like by the time these kids turn 18 and get their cap and gown and you will go out into the quote unquote real world. Like what are they going to be like? And you can kind of size everybody up. And obviously what you see here are these like very exaggerated, very over the top, like very flamboyant personalities. Like they're very outsized. Like it's fascinating to me as I get older how young high schoolers are. <laughs> like, it's kind of like the inverse of like Matthew McConaughey in days and confused where it's like, I keep getting older and they say the now it's like, it's how do I put this and not sound gross? Um, always the, like the Mike's new. Name. <laughs> I remember I like, I'm, I'm very good friends with one of my ex-girlfriends. We've been, buddies for like 20 something years and i remember i texted her i'm like i think today is the day i grew up because like i drove by a group of like high school girls jogging um for like cross country and my first thought was like oh they should probably run on the sidewalk and not in the street because like someone might hit them with their car and i'm like damn like all of a sudden i feel old because like (laughs) And when I interned at a high school, like, every, they just seemed so young and, like, so naive to, like, how the world is going to be, even mm-hmm. though they thought they knew everything. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, no, I mean, uh, going back to the Matthew McConaughey quote, I feel like I have stayed the same age and they're getting younger. It's, mm-hmm. I like, I'm totally mm-hmm. with you. Like, I, I'm not getting older. I just am realizing more and more how young they are like even mm-hmm. even people in their 20s i think look like children to me so no yeah. no offense to the listeners in their 20s or younger mm-hmm. but no i mean if anything
0: we want to steal your youth right you know like pull it in Elizabeth Bathory <laughs> and just steal stay forever young mm-hmm. um yeah and it's but at the same time it's interesting because like i'm this is a thought that's kept me awake like um I am 47 years old, and I wonder if my dad, who passed when he was 48, I wonder if when he was like my age, if there was ever nights he lay awake and it's like, "What's the better werewolf movie? <laughs> you know, The Howling or American Werewolf in London?" Do you know what I mean? Like I think it at uh, the a. I, I grew up in it, like the first age of video game systems, and I think we are is our gener- Gen X is rewarded with like all the things that we loved as youths. Mm-hmm. Like they're still celebrated. Like I could not in a heartbeat ever imagine my dad like collecting movie memorabilia or figurines. Do you know what I, I mean? Do. Like I don't know.
1: No, totally. Talking. Yeah. Like they were thinking about adult things when they were adults and we were like, you know, playing with our Star Wars figurines yeah. or, you know, having the Wolfman fight Frankenstein or whatever. Like, yeah.
0: And all that is to say it's really weird when Rose McGowan's Courtney has this completely Machiavellian scheme like yeah I'll let you reveal it like her scheme to implicate uh or to cover up like Liz's death is oh pretty God. it's mean mm-hmm. uh and it's ingenious uh, so I'll let you take it from here
1: yeah this is another like fascinating commentary on how we view teen girlhood and womanhood and sexuality um but courtney's plan is to uh, implicate liz as someone who had a taste for strange men she would go so allegedly she would go pick up men in bars take them home have sex with them send them on their way uh courtney's story is that this happened and liz did it with the wrong man who ended up murdering her um, to sell the story, she takes Liz's corpse out of the bed, puts it under the bed, has sex with a stranger played in hindsight, regrettably, by her then boyfriend Marilyn Manson. Um, oh, I did not know that. Yes, yeah. That mm-hmm. Yeah, they were dating at the time and he had a cameo. He was the one mm-hmm. um, but uh, which which, you know, adds another wrinkle of abuse. Mm. and But anyway, um, she has sex with this stranger in Liz's bed to get the man's DNA in her sheets. Then sends him on his way. And then she puts Liz's corpse back in the bed. And she sells the big lie that Liz was um, sexually assaulted and murdered by a stranger. And as you said, it is so grim. But Courtney, she gets away with it, with the cops at least, because it's as she says, their worst nightmare, this picture of immaculate teen girlhood destroyed by perversion. People believe it because they want to believe it because it's so horrible, but titillating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, and she gets away with it because Courtney is an evil genius and she knows, she knows how the world works. Yeah.
0: And you're right because there is this tendency to be like i knew it like we like to see like the american sweetheart Mm -hmm. torn down at the end like we get a a grim sense of satisfaction from it because they're like see we told you like nobody can be that good Mm -hmm. or that perfect and it does make us feel a bit better about ourselves and i think we enjoy anything as a society you know because this is peak jerry springer like Mm -hmm. this 1999 is when this comes out like it's peak jerry springer it's peak like wwf it's peak um like it's the year that like Woodstock hits, and you have, you know, basically a small town destroyed mm-hmm. by a hundred thousand frat bros <laughs> that um, didn't bring water with them to drink and rioted. Mm-hmm. Um So you have it. It feels good to see Innocence torn down at that point. Like we do get a charge from it. Um, You mentioned the queerness of this movie and you're like, hey, this is the hill I'm gonna die (laughs) on. So now is that time to kind of charge up that hill and talk a little bit about that and maybe, you know, what how the representation maybe looks in a movie like Jawbreaker versus how we might see it now.
1: Yeah, like, it's very, of its time, like, late, you know, 99, because you've got jokes about when people are talking about Violet, the theater kids are talking about Violet, Um, they're talking about how she might be bi-coastal, and someone says, or maybe just bi, that's hot. You know, like, jokes about bisexuality, not where that sexuality is the butt of the joke, but just making little cheeky references to it. Um, There are no explicitly confirmed queer characters. It's heavily suggested, like, you know, the theater kids, one of the guys has a strong lisp and is very effeminate. It's suggested Mm -hmm. that the theater kids are queer, but it is, you know, Darren Stein has confirmed on Twitter that Violet is queer, that Fern is queer. Mm -hmm. Um, But even without that explicit confirmation, she is clearly in love with Liz at the beginning of the movie. You know, there is a lot going on in these mean girl dynamics to me about repressed sapphic desire. You know, I think Courtney is sexually obsessed with Liz. I think that's Mm -hmm. part of what is going on with Courtney having sex in Liz's bed right above her body. Um, She is kind of, sublimating her sexual desire for Liz by having sex in Liz's bed um, just a few feet above her Um, but yeah like Fern is obsessed with Liz talks about staring at her in class you know waxes rhapsodic about how she looks and how she smells and how beautiful and perfect she is there are so many little moments where they make reference like but they back away really quickly because kind of At that point, saying, yes, I'm a lesbian or yes, I'm a bisexual woman still wasn't really accepted, even when you've got a queer filmmaker telling this story. Um, But there are little moments of dialogue where Courtney says she's turned on by Julie being aggressive or she, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Fern starts to talk about what she likes in a guy but Courtney interrupts her before she can actually tell us what she looks for in a person, you know. But I really think it's interesting that you've got all these roiling romantic and sexual desires between this group of girls. And you've got this violence in there. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of the, do I want her? Do I want to be her? Where there's no socially acceptable way for Courtney to act on desires for Liz. There's no socially acceptable way for Fern to act on her desires for Liz. So they channel it into these, more violent or more dominant ways and you can talk about how problematic that is like the trope of the um the violent queer person where you know a lot of times uh when someone is very vitriolically anti-queer in public people always accuse them of being closeted which is problematic in and of itself by saying that you know closeted people are violent which is ridiculous so you've still got some aspects that in hindsight feel a little i hate to say problematic over and over again but it feels mm-hmm. like it feeds into that stereotype it dated yeah yeah exactly yeah, it would have
0: been dated because it would have been like what they would have been allowed to mm-hmm. maybe get away with or portray exactly i mean we're looking at three years post scream when when you look back at it now like oh it's pretty obvious that Stu was in love with billy mm-hmm and billy saw that recognized that and was able to exploit Stu in order to get him to do his bidding Mm -hmm. like do i think necessarily i I would say like Stu would have been like bisexual and billy would have been like his sexuality is whatever suits him at the time basically Mm -hmm. and i see a lot of parallels in this movie in terms of portrayals between like courtney and uh, Billy mm-hmm. uh, from Scream yeah. in that like Courtney to me is very much like her sexuality is pretty much whatever will keep her on top of like the social mm-hmm. ladder. Like that pretty much is the only thing that really matters to her is that she is at the top of the pecking order. Cause if, if uh, Violet supplants her at the top of the chain, it's not like she has any fewer friends at that point or any less clout. It's just that somebody has more than her. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think you see how she's able to use that sexuality, like we mentioned, in, like, framing this person for her friend's death, but then also, like, the scene with, like, the dumb jock. Yes. And it's really, like, all of the men in this movie, like, they're pretty much just, like, super one-dimensional, don't have a lot going on for them. Like, it's a movie of himbos, basically.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um,
0: it's your high school movie turned on its head. It's like, all right, we're going to develop all of the women. That's where all of the interest is. Mm -hmm. And the men are just there to basically uh, look really, really pretty, Uh, which they do. And they do a fantastic job of doing that. (laughs) But like that dominatrix scene where she, Rose McGowan, uh, Courtney comes in with a popsicle Mm -hmm. and teases, I think it's a Dane. Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, it's fan. And he's just, a total oblivious, which to be honest, is your typical high school guy that is like getting sexual favors. He wasn't expecting, like mm. he doesn't know how to fucking handle that. <laughs> are you kidding me? Like Dane is the Danes of the world. <laughs> at 17 are not meant to handle the Rose <laughs> of the world. Like they are not built intellectually, emotionally,
1: physically to do any such thing. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought up the big stick scene because that's another good one. And just just the aesthetics, you know, as you said, like really strong female characters like. To borrow a line from Scream, super bitches like you've got these really extreme female characters, you've got, you know, classic female actresses like with Pam Greer showing up and being the badass cop and just, you know, as we talked about with the costumes, like these candy colored leather shop workers basically with the fetish like the latex skirts and things like that like this is a queer dream this movie and yeah i think that was something that i really responded to was again not to delve into cliche with strong female characters but i really responded to how these women were drawn and how the men were just toys just an afterthought Mm -hmm which was so refreshing to me at that age, because you're not used to seeing that a lot um, in teen movies, especially at that time.
0: No, I'm thinking of like teen movies because I think this straddles the line. It's a, a comedy more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like I know, I think that, um, Ba Darren Stein said he originally wrote it more with more overt horror elements in it. Um, and probably would have fit pretty well into, that subgenre, like the revival of like teen slashers Mm -hmm. that was starting from 96 to about 2001 um, really kind of ruled the horror box office. Like that probably the original concept of this would have fit in very nicely with that. But I think the fact that it transformed more into like a camp comedy Mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of dark gallows humor to it maybe allowed it to stand out from that crowd. Um, but I think of like teen movies from this era as like can't hardly wait. Would have been one that hit that. I think I saw that four or five times in theaters. Mm-hmm. Like I loved that movie. But that's more of your typical earnest. Uh, you know, Ethan Embry is your sad emo <laughs> kid. Um, you know, Lauren Ambrose is your like you're too cool for everything kind of like gothy type girl. Mm-hmm and i thought that movie was was just brilliant but it's like she's all that and uh i think election is not too far yeah in this yeah era either for another like satirical take on high school mm-hmm. that goes kind of in the way the other direction um so it was a pretty you know it, it watching this made me similar to watching flatliners for psychoanalysis it made me miss a time when movies like would allow or theaters would have the capacity to show these like mid-level mid-budget mid-star movies but you had a lot more choices like now something like this would go right to netflix and after the first weekend be immediately forgotten about and relegated to the dustbins of history.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's I, I think that's why I have such a vivid memory of seeing it in the theater and mm-hmm. why I cherish it so much, especially because yeah. I didn't see a lot of movies with my sister and I was really glad yeah. I got to see this with her. Um, I, I need to get with her and ask her what her thoughts on the movie are. Cause we have not talked about this movie much after we saw it mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, but yeah, I just, I really mourn the loss of movies like that.
0: The other movie we were talking off air and the other movie you mentioned that this gets compared to a lot, which makes sense, would be Heather's, Mm -hmm. which I think is the quintessential straddle the line between comedy and horror and give like a very dark, satirical look at the high school experience. So could you speak to how. You know what you see as
1: similarities and maybe where it diverges yeah absolutely the, the heathers was definitely a formative movie for me i was i was too young to see it in theaters but i saw it on video very early watched it over and over again was obsessed with it and th- to me heathers is the goth like the goth sister and uh-huh. jawbreaker is like the the legally blonde sister like sure where they're the same movie, kind of, but they have completely different sensibilities. They both find the humor in really morbid situations. Obviously, they're finding humor in death. They're finding humor in these really, on paper, horrific events. So they, they have the same sense of humor, but there's something a little... Again, there, it's not that there's not Camp and Heathers, but it's turned so far up in jawbreaker Mm -hmm. to me that they have totally different sensibilities. Like I think of Heather's as being in a way a lot darker um, and a lot, partly because of Winona Ryder being involved because I think of Winona Ryder as kind of being the goth princess ideal for a lot of girls in my generation. Coming off like Beetlejuice Mm -hmm. and Edward Scissorhands. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And kind of, Having a a duo, obviously Veronica is the anti-heroine slash heroine in the movie, and JD is not the hero. But with this duo, you've got a darker energy, I think, with this kind of uh, star-crossed lovers toxic duo with their romance that's going on, and with C- Christian Slater brings this like really sexy, brooding darkness to it that I don't think is present in Jawbreaker because of the himbos that you mentioned. Like they, um, you know, Marilyn Manson, even at the time brought a darkness to it. And in hindsight, knowing what a terrible human being he is brings even Mm -hmm. more, but on the whole, there's a lot of lightness to the, the gender roles, I think in Jawbreaker that you don't find in Heather's. So there, Mm -hmm. um, and Especially uh, the scene, we published something recently on FilmCred about the scene where um, Heather Chandler, I believe, um, has just finished giving a blowjob at a college party. And she kind of stares at herself in the mirror and spits out water at her reflection. And it's this really, really affecting scene where there's so much wrapped up in there about teen girls and their sexuality yeah like a lot of shame a lot of expectations that we put on teen girls too early i don't think you find that in jawbreaker i don't think it ever quite goes to as dark a place because Mm. it it focuses so much more on the humor and the camp elements so to me they're kind of two sides of the same coin but there's a darkness to heathers that i don't find in jawbreaker and i love both I, I really yeah. respond to dark films and I respond to the, the more lighthearted ones, but there's a darkness to Heather's that I don't think is present here. It's there's a lot less, I mean, by the late
0: eighties, early nineties, I mean, you see it in slasher movies where the sexually promiscuous couples are the ones that get off pretty early on. Like there's very few non-virginal final girls. Even if that, you know, wasn't necessarily the intent of the final girl being a virgin, like, it's still something that we talk about to this day. And I think there's, like, a lot of sexual shaming in general that goes on. The is a very conservative time. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, like, even, and I think very conservative times can make for very kind of progressive and transgressive art. Um, I wish we had more of it during this current time period. I'm kind of shocked that we don't have more. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's what happens when everything is consolidated to a few companies. Yeah. Um, and you're, you know, like Disney is, is transgressive when they are like, yeah, we have a couple queer characters we won't mention. <laughs> that we'll cut but out with six seconds. More, just, yeah. yeah. And we'll cut them out so we can still play in China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, but, you know, hey, we represent everybody. Um, here like i think like sexuality is way more open and, and embraced. i think you saw that in the late 90s where it was like it's more of a free-for-all it's definitely a lot more openness and a lot more ability to be far more sexually ex- expressive than you would have been a, even a decade ago
1: mm-hmm. yeah and i've obviously i don't think heathers is making homosexuality the butt of the joke but Mm -hmm. you know the classic line about i love my dead gay son i love my dead gay son i don't don't know that it would have gotten as big a laugh 10 years later i just something about the way it's delivered again that's don't don't misinterpret me and make me i'm not saying that heathers is making fun of gay people the quite the opposite but there's something one
0: of the the over the top reaction to like oh no i have a queer kid Mm -hmm. like that's the butt of the joke right there. yeah
1: yeah but i i don't think that joke would have landed quite the same even you know mm-hmm. 11 years later however many years later it was for jawbreaker sure yeah. no that makes sense i can understand
0: that and obviously with heathers having a movie based around like the mass murder of a school off a of high school would be a much harder sell in uh for many reasons right now yeah and fury but yeah so did you get from the prom scene at the end of jawbreaker i think i made a note at one point like a loved seeing the donnas as the yes. <laughs> high school band the donna's fucking rules mm-hmm, man mm-hmm. um i remember catching them in a small small club in providence and them just like owning the 150 people that <laughs> were in that place um
1: but did you get um Carrie vibes oh yeah oh yeah very strong yeah mm-hmm. yeah very strong Carrie vibes like the slow motion the the sound dropping out the way it's framed with um, like being around the the mm-hmm. set or being around the stage yeah I mean I, I think there are a lot of like Fern when she shows up she looks exactly like Carrie with the long stringy hair before mm-hmm. she gets the makeover but you know so the, even from the beginning i think there's a lot of carrie going on and i mentioned the mm-hmm. two cameos from carrie with pj souls and william Cat. um but yeah that prom scene that's that's another thing that i love and i think is super queer because to me carrie is a very queer story
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that's kind of a, a a tip of the hat to a queer girl high school story and kind of um paying tribute but also kind of not sending up carrie but just showing a long line of queer cinema and queer horror and i just i love that homage because it's not super blatant but it's very clearly there
0: yeah and to your point earlier the way this movie ends like how popularity is a house of cards like as soon as i mean you know with good reason as soon as like courtney's scheme has been revealed um everyone turns against her all at once mm-hmm. and they just pelt her with garbage yeah just a fantastic fucking end and then it just ends like <laughs> it's funny because like we've been talking about violet versus courtney for most of the movie but violet is kind of a mcguffin mm-hmm. in the end like she doesn't Really factor into the end of the movie all that much. Uh, it's really um, Rebecca Gayhart's Julie that is like the one actively trying to um, put Courtney. She's the one that doesn't really want to go on with the scheme, and she's the one that is like actively seeking to expose Courtney for the fraud that she
1: is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is very much the Amy Irving character from Carrie where she mm. she's kind of friendly to Fern throughout the movie. Yeah. You know, I so the, drawing in those lines from there as well. I love but yeah, I, and I I love how cynical the movie is about the police because the police buy Courtney's story automatically even though mm-hmm. um Detective Cruz seems like she's good at her job and seems like she has good instincts. She buys the story as well. Pam Greer's character goes along with it, but it doesn't ultimately matter that the police got the wrong guy, that the real justice is losing your, your social cloud. Yep. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. At the end of the day, that is what is going to matter. Like if Courtney could, if Courtney spends a long stretch in prison, but she is still adored by the public, like, that is okay.
1: Exactly. Uh, she didn't get her perfect picture in the yearbook, and said she got the her makeup messed up, being pelted with the flowers, and yeah. that's the ultimate injustice to her.
0: If there was, like, an early 2000s, Rose McGowan as Courtney you know, women in a women-in-prison movie, it <laughs> would have been the worst thing in the world, is all I'm saying. <laughs> I would have been... I, I loved her so much in the late... like the mm-hmm. I love her in scream so much that I bought doom generation sight unseen. And you know, I don't regret many. I do regret buying this, (laughs) Um, but my God, she is just amazing in here and just owned it. She
1: is. She gives an amazing performance. I don't think there are a lot of things. I think this movie deserves more credit for but Rose McGowan's performance is so perfect because she's magnetic
0: i mean like this is a character that if you if you're like a jerk or if you're like really like you're a bully basically like what she is more than anything else is like a bully um and that is a hard thing to pull off and still be as magnetic and as like immensely watchable as she is throughout this whole movie like she's you almost root for her to get away with exactly her. And I forget what the exact turning point is at one point that I don't even think it's like the scene in the bedroom, to be honest. Um, I can't think of what it is because it's just like, bravo. Like who would think to go to that length? Um, At one point you do turn on her, but my God, she's really fun to watch for most of this.
1: Yeah. She, she, I, she gives me such Joan Crawford vibes in this movie. Mm. Like I, I really think she deserves more credit. I, You can say a lot of things about kind of her white feminist leanings today, but as a mm-hmm. performer, I don't think she gets nearly enough credit for this movie. Yeah.
0: it. I almost give Rose McGowan a pass because of what she suffered yeah. through. Yeah. And also like kind of being... I mean, she was... She was telling her story on this years before anyone believed. Absolutely. Her. She so went through to hell, suffer through it and then be to kind of put yourself out there like that, like what that can do to one psyche. Um, I don't think necessarily it explains all of it away. Um, I think she's played a very important role in the me too movement. Um, and I think I saw this week, like a, one of the lawsuits she brought against, Wine scenes like they a judge dismissed like another one of her lawsuits Mm -hmm. which uh, i don't know the exact reasons why um yeah she's definitely like i think what really soured me to me to her was like in 2020 like actively campaigning for like republican governor uh, like the republican Mm -hmm. governor uh candidate for governor yeah uh and just saying that like yeah this is the party that'll really support women and uh i think we've seen that that's very clearly not the case (laughs) right exactly but i don't uh, yeah severe possible severe mental illness that is you know in the public eye to see
1: yeah though i do i i do admire the hell out of her for fighting so hard and being so brave as you said when nobody believed her nobody wanted to listen Mm -hmm. to her nobody wanted to hear it even though it was an open secret they just didn't want anybody talking about it right anything else on jawbreaker before we just, if you haven't seen it, please go see it. It's a great movie that needs more eyes on it and more love because it's, you know, as I said, it, it didn't get the credit it deserved when it was released. And I still don't think mm-hmm. it gets the credit it deserves now.
0: Yeah. When would you first recommend? Cause that's when I watch this. I'm like, this might be a good, you know, movie night. My daughter's turning 12 and I'm like, this might be a fun movie to watch together. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if she's maybe a tad too young for some of the sexual stuff with it. Yeah. Um,
1: But where would you recommend? I, I was 15 when I saw it. I think 14, 15 Mm -hmm. is a good age. I think maybe 12 is too young for some of the, but yeah, I, I think I was just the perfect age for it. Yeah.
0: We did family movie night to everything everywhere. All at once, and I remember driving home. I like leaned over to my wife. I'm like, "Am I gonna have to explain the ball <laughs> paddle stuff? Like, am I gonna have We need. I know we've had some talks, but do we need to go into that level? And- no, I don't think we need to drill yeah. down into that. You know, yeah. just don't open the bottom bedroom drawer. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to moving on. All right. I don't even know where to
1: start. <laughs> um,
0: so I guess for me. Nineteen ninety one, like being in high school and like buying Nirvana's. Um, Nevermind, like special ordering it on tape from the little record store, um, like when it first first came out and then like playing that so much that my friends threw it out the car window <laughs> um, and then from there going on to discover bands like Fugazi, Bad Brains, Gorilla Biscuits, um, and really getting into punk and hardcore throughout high school and then going to college and immediately, like, I think I chose the school I did basically because it had a college radio station and the school that was offering me a bigger scholarship didn't. And I'm like, but I really want to do college radio. Um, this probably sounds really weird to a lot of our younger viewers that are like, what's college radio?" <laughs> college radio used to be where an alternative rock. My friends was a form of music in the nineties that took rock and roll, which is where you played actual instruments and all right, now I'm being <laughs> anyway. Um, but I really wanted to be a college DJ and they gave me like the 2am to 6am Saturday night into Sunday morning radio shift my first year and i'm like fuck yeah four hours i'll take it (laughs) so i would do that and then at 7 a.m go to the school cafeteria to wash dishes which is my school work study job and i'm in the college radio booth and i'm like look at all my albums and i'm like i need something to play i'm like oh jawbreaker i read about this band like they you know i've read about like they're going to be the new thing and it's called jawbreaker and the album is 24 hour revenge therapy and the song is like do you still hate me i'm like this is gonna be some loud raucous like hardcore shit right here like this is gonna be like gorilla biscuits right here i am all for it and instead what you got was this incredible i mean it's still like crunchy guitar three chord pop punk but as best i could describe it it's like this achingly beautiful song about The dissolution of a and jawbreaker is two songs basically they have like a song where it's like hey here's this new relationship i'm in it's awesome (laughs) and then the next track is like basically here's how that relationship blew up in spectacular fashion right in my face and now everything is fucking miserable and i think that sums up my teen years so perfectly and then the third song is like, fuck the the third type of song is like, fuck the scene. We're just writing great. (laughs) Um, so I put this song in, do you still hate me? I remember that being the first song I ever heard by them and like immediately falling head over heels in love with this band and being like, this is what I've been looking for my whole life and just devouring everything they had put out up to that point. Um, I still think like I have distinct memories of listening to the track Jinx removing in my headphones and thinking like walking through like downtown Providence on a gorgeous day and being like, I am going to like buy flowers from this vendor and give them to the first pretty woman I see and just walk away uh, from there. And I did that and it happened to be the woman was this young woman who I went to school with and had a massive crush on. And I'm like, hey, uh," you know, because I Jinx Removing is the best love song of all time, hands down. Um, So with that blasting in my headphones, like giving her these flowers and being like, you don't need to stop. I just like wanted to give flowers to someone I saw and I hope you have a great day. Uh, I got to go by and just like went and did my thing. And it turned out like she had had a crush on me and... We ended up dating for a bit, and it was really nice until it wasn't. It was a Jawbreaker song, basically. (laughs) It was a typical Jawbreaker song. Um, The 90s are weird. I'm just talking right now. I'm so sorry. No, I love it. Stop for a second. Say that was my first experience with them. Um, Jessica, I made this playlist for you Mm -hmm. going, hey, here are like 10 songs to check out if you... If we do this, what were your initial thoughts on hearing this?
1: I I was listening to that like on repeat today, getting ready for the podcast, and I I I was telling you before we started recording, I don't know how I missed out on falling in love with Jawbreaker Mm -hmm. younger because I was I was the right age, I had the right Mm -hmm. sensibilities, and. Hearing it now, I've, I know I've heard Jawbreaker songs before, but they never got under my skin really. I mm-hmm. remember thinking, "Oh, I really dig this band," but it never just got to me the way certain other bands have. But I, they're just different. They're different. Yeah. They there's the they're so, especially for the time. They're so like literary and confessional in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I told you the vocals. It's like he's dragging himself across broken glass to get every single word out. Like the passion and the urgency behind it which mm-hmm. really struck me. And not just, you know, these songs are really catchy. I really like them. I can listen to them over and over, but something about, I have to get these words out of my body or I will die. Yeah. Like the, I just, I I loved that. And again, I don't know. I feel like I missed out because if I had, heard like a jawbreaker album at the right age, I think I would have been like, this is my favorite band in existence. Yeah. But I just, there's something about those formative years where if you don't hear it at the right time, it doesn't hit you, but I still love them. And I loved, I loved yeah. watching the movie. I loved listening to the playlist. And I'm just like, I get why you are so passionate about them. Mm-hmm.
0: I think what you said right there, like the formative years, I think there's something about the music you discover when you're like 16, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like around like 17, 18, 19, where I could first start, you know, was living out on my own at college. And like, I hated the university. I ended up hating, it was a very conservative Christian university that was in just on the outskirts of a small city that at the time was like, funneling a lot of money into the arts. Mm. So you had like a ton of show spaces and an amazing underground music scene. And I could just like bike off campus and go to like spoken word readings on a Tuesday, um, and art opening on a Wednesday. And then like the other four nights of the week, just go catch any little indie or punk band and just loved it. Um, And luckily, being like a college radio DJ, being able to pretty much get on the guest list for anything I wanted. So I could go to pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jawbreaker hit at that time. And they say it in the movie, like Jessica Hopper, who I think is like one of the preeminent rock critics. I I love her writing. At the time uh, of this, like in the 90s, like she was writing for like a pretty big zine, like Punk Planet and doing her own zine. Like she talks about, one point in the movie there was a time in the early 90s when like bands like green day and offspring and Jawbox, quicksand um sam i am all of these punk bands or emo bands were like getting snapped up by you know major record labels that wanted to have the next nirvana like that's what everybody was searching for and it it was thought like for those who don't know like people thought Jawbreaker would bridge that gap between Nirvana and Three Green Day, like that kind of like grunge mixed with like pop punk, and it be that kind of hybrid. So that's in a lot of ways what they really are, mm-hmm. um, and what Jessica Hopper tops up talks about really eloquently in the movie is like what everybody cared about was, is Jawbreaker going to sign to a major label, and please don't do it. Because um, it was a really, I don't even want to say it was a weird thing, but it was one of those times where like bands felt so personal and they felt like this band exists so that for me they're writing all their songs for me and i think that was the experience of listening to jawbreaker in the mid-90s before they signed to geffen and put out dear you um it felt like songs like chesterfield king and shield your eyes and want and uh boxcar um incredible storytelling in their music and lyrics i mean it was basically sit at my knee and listening to like blake box m- lyrics and this passionate delivery is what drove it and it felt like he's writing this for me you know mm-hmm. or he's writing it for this group of people that i'm in this room with sharing it when you're listening to it and i'm not a super religious person, but I will say that like the closest I've ever come to really believing in a God is like seeing Jawbreaker at the Middle East in Boston and sitting on the side of the stage, taking pictures all night for my fanzine and getting some really, and being in a room of a thousand people, it was right probably a month before they called it quits. It was right at the end where they, and when we talk about this movie, We'll talk a little bit about like the demise of the band for for twenty years. People singing along to the songs at you and at one point him stalking, stopping and being like, You're supposed to hate this record. <laughs> like that had been their experience. And they talk about in the movie after signing to a major label and really cleaning up their sound, uh, and having like layers of guitar and that those vocals were softened and delivered in a more singy way not necessarily out of choice but out of necessity due to all the throat surgeries he had had to remove these like polyps um but him being like you're supposed to hate all these songs like what are you doing and being like i don't know what is after this life but if, if, if it has something like this for eternity then it can't be all that bad So the movie we're going to talk about briefly is called uh, Don't Break Down, a, a film about Jawbreaker, which is about the rise and the meteor. And it's a rags to riches to rags to triumphant return, I guess, story. And was there anything like being unfamiliar with the band that kind of hit watching this movie? Like anything you picked on up on just as a movie, just as like telling the story of like, you know, uh, maybe interesting subject that you didn't have like a massive personal connection
1: to. Yeah, I was really fascinated by the group dynamics. Like, and you'll forgive me because I don't know the band members as well as you do. No, that's okay. Um, yeah. But um, th- the guy who joined last, who always felt like an outcast, even like Chris, yeah, the, bassist, the yeah. bassist. Yeah, Chris always feeling like an outcast no matter what. And Blake kind of them deferring to him like well if if blake says no then it's not going to happen you know like how obviously in the history of rock it's not all sunshine and roses people don't get along all the time but there was something Mm -hmm. about the group dynamics and how they it felt like they always they always worked despite themselves they always worked despite what was going on in the group that really hit me and i was really surprised by that Yeah,
0: when you watch this movie and you see it, like a lot of it was recorded like 2007, 2008 when a lot of it was filmed about a decade after their initial breakup. And you see a lot of the tension at the end. Mm -hmm. And a part of it is like it's a band that eventually, all right, we're going to try to grab that brass ring and we've done everything we can as an independent band. Maybe we should sign... And it's hard to contemplate now, but this was a huge deal in the 90s. Like bands that signed to major record labels, fans would turn their back on them Mm -hmm. and be like, you're not ours anymore. Um, I remember like Maximum Rock and Roll, which was the biggest punk zine in the world, not too long after Kurt Cobain killed himself, the cover of their zine was like a dude with a shotgun in his mouth. And it was about don't let your band do this to yourself. And the whole zine was about the dynamics of like what it what bands made or what bands were promised versus what they actually made when they signed to a record label. And I think the band Helmet broke it down like we signed for a million dollars and in our first year we cleared ten grand each. Because what they don't talk about is like, well, that million is for recording costs and tour costs and this and this. And like that comes out of our pocket. And then if the album doesn't sell, we're fucked. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what happened here is like the album just got rejected by longtime fans. And then Geffen gave up on them. And you see the exhaustion when this band is like they're in just like, all right, now we've gone for it. We don't have this anymore. And now we just fucking hate one another. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it is interesting because you and I know that dynamic of when bands, quote unquote, sell out, the fans are like, oh, well, fuck, they're not they don't belong Mm -hmm. to us anymore. They've changed. I don't know if when that stopped being a thing, but I don't think that's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of younger people can really get. I don't think it exists
0: anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, unless I think what would have to happen is like. All right, Um, we're a progressive, queer friendly band, but what we're going to do is like we're going to license our songs to the NRA for like, you know, NRA Mm rallies. Like, that's what would be, it would have to be more selling out your ideals versus this is more like just, um, just like saying we're going to go to a label and try to become larger mm-hmm. i remember what offspring did and i'm like why like you sold eight million records on epitaph like how are you going to get any bigger on a major label mm. but whatever um there's a band around this time that sounds a lot like jawbreaker called m blanket it's like a little canadian band called the met there the methadone blankets and they have a song called evening to score and one of the it's and it's about like at this time like jocks finding punk rock or jocks finding mosh pits and being like oh I can go and break shit awesome like and then there's a line in the song where it's like um, hold it to the br- your breast because the last time you addressed us was a note that said you're going to get it at recess and it's a perfect encapsulation of like what it felt like sometimes to go to a show and see these bands you love and then have like a month later the same band but now you have like a bunch of white hats with like uh at the time like big johnson t-shirts would have been (laughs) the rave right basically swinging their arms and like pushing people and kicking you in the balls Mm -hmm. and you're like this is not not what i wanted what i signed up for yeah um what i found really fascinating in watching this movie Um, is a lot of the movie, it it goes back and forth between like documentary footage of them playing shows and and coming up and then them in their present day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was Blake or the three of you, can we get you in studio to start playing some songs again? And Blake really calls them out on it. Like Blake, the singer guitar player, the lyricist, you see the uh, when they're talking about the history of the band, the discomfort that he's in in this movie, yeah. and how much it pains him. It it made me cry the first time I watched it to see how hard it was for him to just listen to these songs and not be able to go back and just play them.
1: Yeah, I that it's such an uncomfortable watch, and uh-huh. I. I I've never seen, like I've seen my fair share of like music documentaries and interviews with musicians. And most people, even if there is acrimony towards certain band members or, you know, certainly certain label people, there's a pride and a a nostalgia for things Mm -hmm. that I don't get at all, at least from Blake. Like there Mm -hmm. were certain, there were times when it was good, but uh, there's so much just like bitterness and regret and you know self-doubt and Mm -hmm. like there's none of that looking back fondly on things which again was just so interesting to me i've never i think that goes to just his openness and sincerity like that he's not putting on a show and pretending everything was great or that he's thrilled to be back in the studio or whatever like he's just like no i i'm not going to do that i don't want to do that this is agony for me and i just i don't think i've seen that before
0: and he wears it on his face yeah. i mean you see him wear that and he talks at one point about like you're trying to take the magic away like part of what made us so good was like we existed in this very specific moment in time or a band like us could exist and i don't know you know, like now I'm a day and it wasn't like he stopped playing music. Like he left when John, when jawbreaker disbanded, he formed thorns of life, which was, uh, almost like a, uh, emo super group. Like it had members of like Texas is the reason in it. Um, and they went on to record like three albums, like, and two of them are fucking fantastic records. He went on to do that and then form bands like thorns of life and the forgetters, which are more jawbreaker esque. Um, Like thorns of life has like aaron Cometbus from uh the band crimpshine and who wrote a fantastic zine um that he for years um that was like another like punk super group that was out for a bit and but like there was something about these songs and the and and what they meant to him was like i don't want to go back and relive it and the movie does have like and there was actually at one point there was a band called jawbreaker reunion tour because they knew like all right we are gonna get so many fucking hits like if we call us that like we'll go right to the top of the algorithm you know Mm -hmm. so kudos for (laughs) that And, you know, the movie ends with a bit of triumph and, like, they do get the band in the studio to at least play, like, instrumental versions of their songs. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it's like, hey, in 2017, they went to, like, headline Riot Fest and they played in front of 40,000 people that were fucking there for Jawbreaker. Um, I remember in 2019 when they announced their tour, I was in grad school and pulling, like, fucking 70 80 hour weeks between school and work and internships and you fucking better believe i bought my ticket the very first thing like it's gonna sell out in three minutes i have to drop whatever i'm doing i don't care where i am mm-hmm. and like i think i was leading a group of like high school kids and social skills <laughs> and i thought <laughs> you guys need to stop for a minute left got my computer ordered tickets and came back um but i carried that ticket in my wallet all term like whenever things got shitty i would take it out and be like at least i'm going to see jawbreaker in like however many weeks or months and it was amazing like it was everything i wanted this past spring they celebrated now dear you is considered one of the best emo albums of all time it's you know god like many things. like the film jawbreaker it's gotten this re-examination of um of sorts. And it's like, hey, this is this album that like everybody shit on. Like, it's actually pretty fucking great. And, you know, it's not my favorite record, but I even knew when it came out, like, they were at least like Bad Scene, Everyone's Fault, and Sluttering, and Chemistry, and Oyster, and Jet Black. And I'm like, I love these songs. Like, these are classic. Like, there is nothing wrong with any of these. So they did their 25th anniversary tour this spring and granted it was like two years after it but covid and i'm like uh there's no boston show i have enough air miles and friends that live in denver i'm flying to denver for this and getting there like literally four minutes before they hit the stage (laughs) um but then like they did announce a boston show and my wife and i went and it was probably the best i've ever seen them wow and to your point about them or about Blake in particular being like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I don't want to relive these at one point at the Boston show. He's like, let's be honest. Like this is the best we're ever going to be. And we're pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) Like just totally not even pretending to be humble. Um, Did you, I think my cat just almost fell out the window. So he's 18 and old and, (laughs) It just embarrassing himself but he's like <laughs> this is the best we're ever gonna be and we're pretty fucking awesome just like embracing it knowing that and getting this like acclaim years later and honestly getting paid you know yeah. like more than anything like fucking make that paper mm-hmm. um yeah I'm trying to think because it's just so fucking hard to talk about about me I guess what, what struck me watching this movie was like going back and reliving that time where like every band felt so important so personal and that scene which I'm still involved in like today at lunch we were playing like a girl at in eighth grade had a sex pistol shirt on so we started playing like the sex pistols and the clash and gorilla biscuits and fugazi and the kids are like who's this (laughs) they were like this is actually pretty good or like damn straight yeah (laughs) um What other thoughts do you have? You know, I'm just like throwing stuff out there because I've been rambling. No, I love it. I am (laughs) totally becoming that meme right now. No, but
1: that's the best. Like, because you're so passionate about it. I just love Mm -hmm. hearing about it. But no, if if I I had heard you talking about going to see Jawbreaker and I was so thrilled for you. But if you had shown me that movie and then told me, okay, and Jawbreaker is going to be playing together, I would not have believed you. I, I would have been like, those guys are reuniting and getting on stage together to play those songs. I don't think that's true.
0: Yeah, because you get like that acrimony when you watch this. Like, they literally showed them fist fighting in yeah. the, the movie. <laughs> they talked about like just beating the shit out of one another and then being like, all right, well, that's it. Um, but even when they reunite in studio to sit there and talk about their music, and what's funny is Adam, the drummer, he's always been the one that has like kept hope alive. Mm-hmm. He like got the rights back to their albums. He put out like a live record of their stuff, uh, in, in like 99, I think, um, he's always been the one that is in, and, and I think you see his basement and he has like all the old fan art. like, you used to remember kids. You used to have to like write something <laughs> on paper and put it in a stamp and put it in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, he was always a one that is, and he said like, and he was like very humble about why people love the band. He's like, people love the band because of Blake's lyrics. Like he was very upfront about that. Like that's why this band was special. Um, And it was really like Chris and Blake and Chris, the bassist, probably feeling Mm underappreciated for one. You listen to those bass lines in like songs like Want and Shield Your Eyes and so many others and it really drives the band forward and i think there was definitely a lot of like lead singer lead guitarist versus like the bass players never as a bass player as someone that has been the very shitty bass player (laughs) in tiny punk bands they've been like uh you gotta go dude because you're not very good it's like fair enough (laughs) um you're right um bass players are never appreciated we are the cousin oliver of (laughs) bands we don't get the credit that we're due it's true yeah so you're right like that i'm trying to think what else what about just the idea in general of like regional scenes or because a lot of what comes through is this is like what it was like to be a band in berkeley california Mm -hmm. and i don't think that that exists to a large degree i don't think there's like this regional scene culture though and i could be wrong but it doesn't feel like that as a thing
1: anymore. yeah like well growing up i was always jealous of people on the west coast because it felt like you know obviously in you know seattle and like all these labels in the pacific northwest and in california um you know i grew up in arkansas so I'm sure there was a scene, but I wasn't as tuned into it as a kid. And, you know, obviously not as big as some of the coastal scenes. Um, I was aware, like I was reading um, as many music magazines as I could, and I was listening to as much as I could, but I always felt kind of disconnected in a way. Sure. Um, Like I, I still try to see local bands as much as I can, but again, not a huge scene here. Um, so I, there was kind of a, kind of an envy of the people who were there. Do you know what I mean? Like the people who were writing the zines, who were reading the zines, who were like Jawbreaker was ours before they were anybody else's kind of, um, an envy of that, that sense of community and that sense of just, like I said, I, I feel like I should have gotten into Jawbreaker younger. And like I said, the formative age, just kind of a sense of missing out. You know,
0: I watch that. I get what you're meaning because you feel like, oh, what would it have been like to like grow up in the 70s and to have seen Queen mm-hmm. or to like seen the Clash at like CBGB's in New York mm-hmm. or, or what would that have been like? And there's sometimes there is that, and to a degree, like there's always this feeling like, well, what I'm into, like what I listen to still is old enough now that it would have been like classic rock when I was growing up yeah. and I would make fun of like my dad or <laughs> other people that would, you know, just put on classic rock. I'm like, well, this kind of technically qualifies. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at back at it and got like really wistful and nostalgic for, and I remember like the other night I was watching, like it's just a video of a band playing at mass art and looking at them being like, there's, it's from like 2001. And I'm like, there are so many people in that room that I love. Like I would have known so many people. And my big thing was like, I hope I really appreciated what I had back then. Um, because good as I think things are for me right now, like I think there was something back then where full of hope and full of feeling like there's a way more time ahead of me than behind me. Um, and I really, and I think that I did, but I really, really, sometimes I do ask, I really hope that I appreciate it. All of that as much as. As I should have. So, yeah,
1: you're going to make me start crying. So. <laughs> I know I'm like
0: trying not to at this point. So I think that's a good note to end on um, the I think The last thing I'll say is I made a kid. So I'm doing these anti bullying lessons. And at one point I asked for an answer. I'm like, what happens to, you know, why do people bully? He's like, because they're emo. And I'm like, all right, you're using emo as an insult. It's a form of music. You now have to write a report for me on uh, 10 emo bands. You have a week to do it. Go. And Jawbreaker and the Get Up kids are on there. And I had just gone to see them. And I'm like, Jawbreaker my favorite band. I just saw them. The kids are like, what do they sound like? I'm like, here they are. And I found like, something from when they played uh, Gilman Street in 2017 and the kids are like this is fucking awesome. <laughs> and these are all like again like in inter- mostly rap and hip hop kids like that's what they listen to and they're like uh, this is really good. Um so I think that's as good of a place as Eddie to end. Yeah. So Jessica,
1: where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at we who walk here. Um, I write reviews essays on my website we here.com film cred daily grindhouse ghouls magazine lots of other places but i share my writing and cosplay and all my random mainly horror movie thoughts on twitter at we Who Walk here and you have some straight fire cosplay thank bonkers, you so, <laughs> you know absolutely
0: fantastic any new sets coming up or, um, what are you working on writing wise too let's uh
1: writing wise i've got some reviews coming up um some essays probably mm-hmm. some pride pieces coming out soon for next month um and cosplay i am hoping to it's going to be my most ambitious one yet i'm hoping to have it done for pride month we will see mm-hmm. but keep your fingers crossed for me that i can pull it off okay
0: all right. Not going to reveal it, so that's <laughs> fine. All right. Um, thank you so much for coming. On, and thank I love you. having you it's like part of the rotating crew that we have. I really love what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I was very nervous about it. And, God, I think we were able to connect with some amazing people. So Absolutely. Really yeah, and I'm thrilled um,
1: to be a part of it.
0: Listeners, you know me. You know you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can find uh, Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. I got like a really nice message from a listener asking like what happened to a lot of the social interaction. And I'll be honest, folks, I deleted Twitter from my phone a few weeks ago because I found my mental health spiraling reading it at like one in the morning, and uh, it's improved since I've done that. Um, so I'm not on there as much, but I, you know, I am still very friendly when I'm there. You can also hear my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast with Jen and Lara, wherever you get your shows. Uh, we just recorded on Flatliners. That should be out a couple days after this drops. Uh, and we have, uh, I think we're recording on Blue Velvet this weekend for a comfort horror show, which I'm psyched about. Um, up next, we are finally taking that detour. I know, Sam. We are finally. <laughs> taking that detour to that little barbecue joint down in texas we're going to be spending the hot humid fucking summer doing the texas chainsaw massacre this one's going to be bananas because i don't know if there's a series where the quality (laughs) of film it probably has like the greatest opening entry of any franchise and then it's all over the map then it's a real crap shoot so Jeff, you'll be on some of those, right? Oh, absolutely. I can't wait. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. And, yeah, go watch Jawbreaker. It's on Tubi. And go listen to Jawbreaker. If you find some shows from the 90s, there are definitely shows where I'm in the crowd dancing around. So there you go. Have a great week, off.